of God's word, which comes this morning from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the peace and the love we find in you through your Son and through your Spirit. Help us to entrust ourselves fully to you during times of affliction, knowing that you use our suffering to create in us a lasting hope that will be fully realized when we see you in glory. May we share with others what you have poured out in us and apply what we learn today as we sit under Pastor Daniel's teaching from your word. We love you and commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Drew, and the worship team for leading. Uh, my name is Daniel. I am one of the, the pastors here, and I usually have the privilege of leading us in worship, but this morning it is my privilege to lead us in worship through the preaching of God's word. Uh, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Romans entitled The Reign of Grace. And our pre-service reading came from Romans 5 in which Paul begins the discussion about the hope that is produced as the result of our justification by faith. And that discussion uh, begins to culminate here in chapter 8. Since chapter 5, Paul has explored and explained why and how justification and hope play out, moving from our bondage to sin and death and Adam and the law through the internal battle of the soul between the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit, all the way to our freedom from condemnation and new life in the spirit. And last week, Jeff preached on verses 12 through 17, showing us that we were actually adopted into the family of God. We call God our Father. We have a fundamentally new identity. And this is cause for great hope and rejoicing. But as those of you who have adopted or have been adopted know, even when an adoption is official, there are still consequences from the past, from the former order of things that have long enough fingers to reach into and affect the new order of things. And it is the same with our spiritual adoption. We're going to look today at the tension that Christians experiences while they remain in a fallen world. The tension between what was, what is, and what will be. Read with me, if you will, from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we gather to you this morning to be encouraged in the fellowship of the saints, to be instructed by your word. And God, I confess that I am, I am singularly incapable of communicating the truth to people, but your spirit is capable through your word and so we ask, God, that your spirit would be here ministering your word to your people, that lives would be transformed this morning. God, we ask in your name, amen. So this morning we're going to see that the main point of this passage, which continues on all the way through verse 27, is that the spirit-filled life in an age of suffering is fueled by hope of glory and by prayer. That's the main point, that the spirit-filled life that Paul has been communicating to us in an age of suffering is fueled, is kept alive, kept moving by the hope of glory and by prayer. And Paul illustrates this in verses 18 through 23 by highlighting two of our, our points this morning. First, that suffering is a present reality for us. And second, that glory is our future reality. And then he goes on in verse 24 through 27 to highlight hopeful prayer as our present access to that future reality. So beginning with our first point, suffering is our present reality. Suffering is our present reality. Some of you are gonna start dreading whenever I get up to preach because the last time I was up here, I was preaching on Suffering, uh, specifically the suffering servant. And so uh, you're all going to start thinking that all I preach is pain and suffering and no prosperity gospel here, guys. It's just sorrow and frustration. But all joking aside, it is an undeniable fact. It's an undeniable fact that the human existence is characterized by suffering. So much so that the majority of technology that becomes ubiquitous, that becomes wide, widely used throughout uh, culture, serves, that technology serves to directly mitigate our struggle and our suffering. And the most basic example I could think of is a chair. A chair is less cold and painful to sit on than a dirt floor or a rock. Or in the case of church, a padded chair is less difficult to sit on than a pew. And one of the largest sectors of our economy, the healthcare industry, it's a $2 trillion, uh, $2 trillion industry, and it exists to do what? To address conditions which produce suffering. To prevent and cure dis-ease. And suffering is not just a contemporary issue. It's one of the primary subjects of art and literature in nearly all cultures throughout time. Artists and writers ask the question, why? 
Why do we suffer? What is the nature and the expression of suffering? What does it do to us? What does it create in us? The story of Job is ancient. It's one of the oldest stories in all of humanity. And chapters 3 through 37 are almost entirely the musings of people on the cause and the nature of suffering. So Paul, here in chapter 8, is not suggesting that suffering in this present time is going anywhere. Even though he's laying out this glorious inheritance that we have in Christ, he, it does not exclude us from suffering. He just assumes that the suffering will continue. He says, for I do not consider the suffering of this present time. And he calls us joint heirs with Christ if we do what? If we suffer with him. But the suffering of the present time he addresses is not exclusively human suffering. He addresses creation and humanity as two unique entities, and he describes the nature of both groups' suffering. First, he describes that creation suffers futility, groaning with the anticipation of our restoration. Creation suffers futility, waiting for our restoration. Romans 8, 19 through 22 says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It did not make the choice to do this, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning with labor pains until now. So we see here that Paul and scripture in general makes a distinction between humanity and the rest of creation. And if you affirm a biblical anthropology, which is a, a fancy way of saying a doctrine of humanity, this is not a controversial statement. But to a naturalistic worldview, which much of our culture embraces, this is indeed a controversial and even a repugnant statement. Much of the environmentalist movement over the, the last 50 years has been centered on either deconstructing the concept that man is something distinct from nature or redefining humanity as something lesser than nature. George Carlin famously once compared humanity to a case of fleas on a dog and that the earth would one day shake and scratch itself enough to rid itself of us. But Paul in highlighting that creation is subjected to futility, is at the same time affirming that the creation was made with a purpose. And that creation is suffering under its inability to fulfill its purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, Genesis reveals that it was to serve humanity to serve humanity by providing sustenance, to serve humanity by being the venue that hosted the interactions between God and man, to serve humanity by responding to humanity's cultivation of it. But it was subjected to futility in this purpose. And how did this happen? Through sin. Turn, if you will, to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. 
God speaking to, to Adam after delivering the curse to the serpent and delivering the curse to the woman, he said to the man, because you did not listen to me, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field, not the fruit of the garden. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and to the dust you will return. So do you see that? That the earth is cursed by God because of Adam's sin. Cursed now to battle against humanity rather than provide for it. To bring forth thorns and thistles rather than fruit and flowers. To resist cultivation. To rebel against humanity's authority over it. This is why bees sting us. And bears eat us, and floods and fires destroy our cities, and disease destroys our crops. God cursed the earth, subjecting it to futility of purpose, and the earth obeyed. But we also see that creation is not indifferent to this state. Sorry, Richard Dawkins. The creation itself is groaning. Like Eve, forced to groan in the pain of childbirth, waiting for the image bearers of God to be restored to their intended role. Now, Adam was cursed to labor, to toil, to survive, and then to die and return to the dust of the now cursed earth. So certainly we suffer consequences from creation's curse, but humanity's suffering is something uniquely different. Not only does humanity suffer death, not only does humanity suffer at the hands of a now hostile creation, but humanity suffers exile. Humanity suffers exile, groaning with longing for our final reconciliation to God. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden because of their sin. They are sent out from, uh, and in that exile, all of humanity is sent out from their meeting place with God, sent out from a state of fellowship with him, out into the wilderness where suffering and struggle is the order of the day, out where groaning under heavy burdens is the norm. But Exodus 2, we'll get to Exodus 2. But that suffering and that burden, this is one of God's purposes for suffering. It's to bring us to a place where we so hate our sin that separates us from God that we cry out to God for rescue. And as Exodus 2 reveals, God's ears are particularly tuned to the groaning of his people who are struggling under heavy burdens. And so he has sent a deliverer. 
has sent a deliverer in the person of Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And he has begun the work of restoring God's kingdom on earth through Jesus. And God has adopted us into his family and into his vocation and given us his spirit as a down payment of that complete, future completed restoration. But that does not mean that our exile has fully ended yet and that we no longer experience any form of suffering. Romans 8.23 says, not only that, not only is the creation suffering waiting for our restoration, we are, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, who have been given this down payment, who have been adopted into the family of God, who have been given new life in Christ, we also grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And I actually preached from this text at the beginning of the year for the New Year's sermon. And uh, in that, I pointed out that the reason that we make resolutions to change ourselves, the reason that we make resolutions to change ourselves is because we all have an intrinsic knowledge that we are not who we ought to be. We are not what we could be, and we're not what we someday will be. We long for our completed adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We long for the day when decay no longer fills our body with weakness and pain. We long for the day when sinful rebellion no longer cripples our hearts and our relationships. We long for the day when returning to the cursed dust of the earth in death is no more. And so much of our physical and mental and emotional suffering centers around these longings. And so we groan. We groan alongside creation because suffering is our present reality. But wait, you say. Nobody said, but wait, darn. I thought Pastor Jeff said that life in the spirit was filled with joy. Well, first, don't talk back to me. <laughs> and second, he's absolutely right because of our second point. Not because of our first, but because of our second point, which is that glory is our future reality. Glory is our future reality. Reality. The human race's obsession with finding ways to alleviate suffering in ourselves and in other people is rooted not in the fact that suffering is unenjoyable, but that it's literally not what we were designed for. We were designed for glory. We were created for something different. And when the vision in our eyes degrades after a lifetime of, of seeing clearly, we know that there is something cosmically wrong about that. Because eyes were created to work. When everything in a system that could go wrong does go wrong at exactly the worst moment, part of the frustration of that moment is, that, is the knowledge that there is an ideal way that system is supposed to operate, and it's not. And when we are faced with human suffering, when we walk down the street and see the homeless person begging, or we hear news of someone's abuse or enslavement, or see nations attack one another, 
Part of the feeling of horror that rises in us is the sense that it ought not be that way. It ought not be that some who are created in the image of God exist in such dire straits. It ought not be that parents or spouses betray their children and wives and husbands. It ought not be that nations go to war, rejecting the peace that God has intended to spread across the earth. We were created for something different, and we know it in our bones. And praise be to God that in the work of Christ Jesus, both creation and humanity are being returned to the glory of their design. And in that, we see that creation's return to glory is restoration of purpose. Its curse was being subjected to futility, and its glory will be the restoration of purpose. And this concept of creation longing for restoration of purpose is not an invention of Paul. It's a common theme throughout the Old Testament that part of God's world-writing salvation would be the restoration of creation to an Eden-like state. God expels the Canaanites from the promised land because their wicked actions were causing the land to be defiled. And he was restoring the land for his holy purposes. The Sabbath laws for the land in Leviticus 25 were partially about allowing the soil to, the soil's restoration. And Isaiah reveals that creation suffers. It mourns as a consequence of the fallen state of things, but that God will restore the creation. That the righteous root of Jesse will restore the creation. And look what he restores it to. In Isaiah 6, sorry, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, it says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will all be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and the toddler will put his hand into his snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other in my entire holy mountain, for the land will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Certainly, this is a picture of creation restored to its purpose. Peace, God's shalom, is restored between all creatures. The once cursed ground is again providing all that the creation needs. And humanity's presence and activities are no longer resisted. This is creation's return to glory. And as creatures, humanity certainly benefits from this. But this restoration comes as a result of humanity's restoration, humanity's return to glory. And humanity's return to glory is reunion with God. Our curse was to be driven into exile, and our return to glory will be our reunion with God. Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is not seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? 
Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. What hope is he talking about here? The hope of final redemption? The hope of our perfected adoption? And what does he mean that in this hope we are saved? I thought salvation was about grace and faith. Paul, you spent chapters talking about this. Well, all of this is true. But the linchpin of salvation is not faith itself. It's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And the focus of salvation is not grace itself. It's the giver of that grace, the triune God. So the hope that saves us is not the mere act of hoping. It's the object of our hope. And Paul clarifies what this hope is in his letter to Titus when he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are longing for, groaning for this blessed hope. When Kristen was 23, her father, Jeff Roach, died. I gotta take water, so it's a tough spot to stop. Um, Jeff Roach died of a heart attack. He died in the morning, and the family had to spend all day meditating on, on the, the reality that their father this great man was no longer with them. Everybody describes Jeff Roach as just a magnificent human being filled with the Spirit of God. And as the, the end of the day came, Kristen stayed with her mother in her old room at her house. And she tells the story of how <clears throat> she heard a sound start coming out of her mother's room after they'd gone to bed. A sound of grieving. Brenda Roach was groaning for her beloved, who she longed to be with and could not. Groaning because although she had hope that she would be with him again in glory, she was still in the grip of the suffering that comes from being separated from the one that you love. Some of you know this sound of groaning. Some of you still make this sound of groaning. But Jeff Roach, Kristen's dad, wasn't groaning anymore. Jeff Roach had put his faith in Christ Jesus and his family would tell you that he had eagerly waited with patience for the blessed hope. So in the moment of his death, he returned to glory. He was reunited with God, set free from sin and set free from the bondage to decay. And brothers and sisters, this is what awaits all who have put their faith in the blessed hope. We go to the end of the book. We go to the end of the story in Revelation. And Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, 
God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more. Because the previous things, in this reunion with God, the previous things have passed away. And this is what our souls are longing for. This is the glory of humanity in the future, that we are reunited with God. We groan, not just to be free from our sufferings, but to be with the one that we love. So how would Paul have us live in the tension of between what has been and what is and what will be? What does eagerly waiting with patience look like in an age of present suffering and with a hope of future glory? Well, Paul implies that it is a life that is characterized by hope and by prayer. Which brings us to our final point. Prayer is our present access to our future reality. Prayer is our present access to our future reality. It says, now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit, in the same way as this hope helps us, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul assumes in this passage, like he assumed suffering previously, he assumes in this passage that we will be praying even though we don't necessarily know what to pray for. And he makes this assumption because prayer is a fundamental expression of our hope and our faith in God. It is a fundamental expression of our hope and our faith in God. Now, I have been involved in ministry, volunteer or vocational, for nearly 15 years. And in that time, I've been part of some prayer movements that have radically transformed my life and the life of my family. But I've also been part of some churches in which prayer was an afterthought or non-existent. And trying to write prayer into the DNA of a believer or a church who has gone a long time without cherishing prayer is harder than almost any other work in ministry I've done. But yet, just like DNA is the, is the building blocks of life, a building block of life, prayer is the most basic of all spiritual disciplines. And it's the foundation on which the rest of the spiritual disciplines are built. Because the very act of prayer is an act of faith. It's a demonstration of the belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. It's an act of faith to approach a righteous God who could condemn us in his holiness, but who has assured us that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And faith 
is pleasing to God. Faith pleases God. Hebrews 11.6 makes it plain that it is impossible to please God without faith. So the one who draws near to him must draw near in faith. And because prayer is such a baseline expression of faith, it should be as natural for the believer to pray as it is for him to draw breath. But it's not. It's difficult. It feels useless sometimes. It's overwhelming or confusing. If I ask people, why don't you come to our corporate prayer service once a month? The most common answers, there's two most common answers. The first one can be distilled down to this. I have other things that I think are more important. Sometimes that's a nap. Sometimes it's a family gathering. Sometimes, you know, like, it's not always, it's not always selfish, but there's other things that I think are more important. And the number two most common reason is it's intimidating because I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray well. And this passage is revealing that none of us know how to pray well. Yet we are still invited by God himself to participate in prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and modeled prayer for them. And they still failed in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray properly. But the Spirit of God prays alongside us and within us to make our prayers what we never could. Because in addition to being a baseline expression of hope and faith in God, prayer is an exercise of mystical union with God. Prayer is an exercise of mystical union with God. Now, the term mystical union is an ancient term, and it can give some people the creeps, right? But the doctrine of mystical union is simply the biblical concept that we are not just forensically or legally in Christ, in union with Christ, or it's not just a future promise that we will be united to Christ. It is the concept that we are actually now in real union, in real relationship with Christ, that we become members of, his, of Christ's body, and that Christ's life indwells and animates us through the Holy Spirit. And it's both a personal and a corporate union and it is a union that is producing faith in us so that we exercise that faith in the ministry to God and to others. And it is mystical. It does contain an element of spiritual mystery and wonder. Read John 14, chapters 14 and 15, and tell me there are, there's no spiritual mystery to what Jesus is saying there. He's talking to his disciples before he goes to be crucified and says, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, and my spirit will come to you, and my Father and I will come and make our home with you if you love me and keep my word, but you need to set up your home in us. You need to abide in me because I'm the vine and you are the branches, and on and on and on and on. It's mysterious, but it's true. And prayer is an exercise of that mystical union. Let me paint a picture of what's happening when the believer prays. The believer approaches God in faith and in hope to lift up our weaknesses to him. 
the Spirit, which dwells within us and knows our mind, begins to intercede for us with groanings that could surpass anything that we muster. And who else is interceding for us? Christ Jesus himself, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the same Christ and Father who sent us the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of our reunion with God, that Spirit who is now praying on our behalf as we draw near to God. I don't know how any of this works. I don't know how any of this works, but it's true. This mystery, the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of our union with Christ is what the believer is brought into in prayer. So when we encourage you in the practice of private prayer, when we invite you to the prayer meeting, we're not inviting you to a dreary obligation of mere Christian duty. We are inviting you to participate in a moment of reunion, in a moment of glory in the presence of God himself. Brothers and sisters, the spirit-filled life is a life that does not deny present sufferings, but it does not define itself by them either. The spirit-filled life eagerly anticipates and awaits the hope of a future completed restoration, but the spirit-filled life also actively engages the reality of our reunion with God by fellowshipping with him through his spirit and in prayer. May we be a church that is known for living well in this tension of the now and the not yet of God's restoration of all things. May we be a church that's marked by compassion, humility, but hope and prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are acquainted with our suffering. And we thank you that we have made you, been made joint heirs with you through them. Lord, we thank you for the reality of our union with you. We thank you that you have not left us orphans. We thank you that, that we are in you and you in us. We thank you for the mystery of this. And Lord, we especially thank you that one day your glory will cover the earth like the water covers the sea and that all things will be set right. And if you are here today and you have not put your faith in this blessed hope, in the blessed hope of Jesus Christ, all these things that we talked about which are the, the reward for the believer, the promise for the believer, all of these things can be yours by casting yourself in faith upon Christ and his mercy. I pray that you would receive that, that you would respond to that so that you too may enjoy the union that we have, the reunion that we have with God as his people. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.